Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. In 2009, at a TED Talk event in the Puget Sound, there was a business owner of an ad agency who went up and gave a talk on how to be an effective leader. That short video clip to a small room of people then became the most watched TED Talk of all time. Uh, That business owner was a guy named Simon Sinek who is now become this leadership guru and a global bestseller. And that talk, and along with his first book, was all around the concept of know your why. And he uses examples like Apple and Martin Luther King Jr. And it's a phenomenal TED Talk. You should watch it after you turn this off. Uh, And I remember seeing it years and years ago and and seeing his name pop up and things like that. And that... It was such a compelling um, idea that it really captured the audience around the world of what that was. And and I was thinking about that this week as uh, we've just concluded this series called Future Church. um, And then Josh Burr gave an amazing follow-up message about who do you say Jesus is. And uh, Pastor Keith last week just talking Um, about our response and responsibility uh, to share that good news. And and throughout the entire series, there is this thing inside of me that just felt um, that we jumped in immediately addressing the questions of who. Who are we as a church and where? Where do we exist in this world and in this time and space? But we never talked about that idea of why, why all of this matters. Why do we exist as a church and why do we exist as a church the way that's been described the past few months? Um, Why should we say, yes, Jesus, you are Lord? Why should we share our faith? I mean, all of these things, I just found myself just being brought back again and again and again to the most foundational truth um, of the entire scriptures. That's what I want to talk to you about today. Is not something new, maybe new for some, but rather something that needs to be recovered, something that needs to be identified and built upon. And it's the idea of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that why, in, in Simon Sinek's language, it's that foundational principle that governs everything else that we do. Paul, in his letter uh, to the Corinthians, at the very end, he kind of like us, just jumps right in, talks about all these issues of division and immorality and church structure. And at the very end of the letter, he reminds them of the source of it all. He says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day 
according to the scriptures. So I love this. As Paul is getting ready to conclude this incredibly dense and personal letter, he draws back to this idea of the gospel, of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he says these things about the gospel. Number one is that we need to be reminded of the gospel. And oftentimes when we talk about the gospel, I think wrongly we can think that this is something that we should have moved beyond. But according to Paul, this is something you never graduate from. You never move beyond. The gospel is something you revisit. You need to be reminded of again and again. The second thing from this passage is that the gospel is something that you have to receive. The gospel is not something that you master, you attain. It's not something that you earn. The gospel ultimately is a gift that you have to receive. Next, he says that same gospel that you received is something you have to stand firm in. And so there is an active part on our end and how to stand firm in the gospel. Next, it says that the reason why this is so important is because of that gospel that you are saved. So the gospel has salvific power. It has the ability to bring about salvation. And, and lastly, the thing I just really wanted to point out to I just keep thinking about is when Paul's talking about the gospel, he says, this is of first importance. And so, I don't, I don't know if this is going to be the best message I've ever preached, but I, I do think that the content of this message is one of the most significant because it's of first importance. And when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, which again, can for those of you who might be unfamiliar with church, might just sound like some sort of foreign language or kind of, high religious talk or something like that. But my hope today is that we would be able to kind of break down what the gospel is so that we can understand that why. Why do we gather and operate and function in this way as a community called the church? And so I want to give you a, a definition. This isn't a dictionary definition, but this is a definition I came up with that in my opinion encapsulates what the Bible is referring to and talks about the gospel. So here's the definition. A gospel is this, a life-altering good news to a specific group of people that offers the promise of salvation and wholeness and requires a level of surrender and allegiance. And so just, just an illustration, the word gospel in the Greek, euangelion, was not a a word that was invented by the early church. It wasn't a word invented by Jesus. As a matter of fact, it was a word that was borrowed from Roman military culture. You see, when uh, Rome was going and taking over much of the known world, uh, when they had come to a new region, they would send uh, an evangelist, a euangelion, a messenger, that would go and proclaim a gospel. He'd proclaim a message, and this is essentially what the message would be. There's a new king, his name is Caesar. This is good news for you because you're not going to have peace and you're going to have stability as long as you surrender peaceably to the Caesar. And so that's what, that's what the, the good news was. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene and he starts the gospel writers and every gospel talk about him coming and proclaiming a gospel of the kingdom, they knew exactly what that was. It was a life-altering good news statement to a specific group of people that offers a promise of salvation, wholeness, but requires a level of surrender and allegiance. 
And so the, the idea of a gospel is not new back then. And by the way, it's not new now. We have gospels all over the place. We have these large promises, these heralds of like, this thing can help you, and these life-altering statements. And, and in these, these promises of these life-altering statements, it talks about what's, what kind of salvation it's going to offer you, what kind of wholeness it's going to offer you. And then normally talks about, well, this is what it's going to cost you. And I'm not just talking about infomercials. I'm talking about that we receive these kinds of gospels all the time. Let me just give you a few that operate all the time in our culture. There's the gospel of relationships. We think that, oh, someday when I get married, then I will receive the wholeness that I'm looking for. Someday when I have kids, I'll have the wholeness. Sometimes if I get, someday if I get a, a girlfriend or if I get a boyfriend, or, or maybe it's not even kind of a nuclear family relationship. Maybe it's like someday if I just belong to that group of friends, maybe if I have that sort of relational status, maybe I have that belonging then I will have salvation. Then I'll have wholeness. And even if it costs me to get there, it's going to be worth it. We believe there's a gospel of relationships. There's a gospel of success. That the salvation and the wholeness I'm looking for is on the other side of performance and achievement. It's on the other side of a promotion. It's on the other side of an education. It's on the other side of someone seeing your potential. And so we, what does it do? It costs us something. That good news, that gospel of success comes and whispers in our ear and we lay down our lives because we believe the promise of salvation that it brings. You're getting the ideas. There's a gospel of sexuality that we think that the intimacy, the identity, the safety found in a certain sort of um, understanding of that will it'll give us something of worth and salvation. It's the gospel of pleasure. If I have enough and I gain enough material possessions, if I, or if I retire, if I don't have to worry about anything else, and there's this gospel of pleasure. There's a gospel of health. I mean, just drive along the 101 um, on a Saturday, and what do you see? We see people who are devoting, sacrificing, giving their allegiance over because they believe the promise of if I look a certain way, feel a certain way, if I eat healthy enough, then I will be able to finally have a sense of wholeness and completeness. Uh, there's a gospel of politics. There's the gospel of tolerance. And there's all of these things. And, and by the way, relationships, success, sex, pleasure, health, politics, tolerance, all of these things, if you notice, none of them are bad. But Matter of fact, many of them are actually gifts from the Lord. But I think when we start believing that those gifts from the Lord are themselves the gospel of the Lord, like they're the thing that's going to bring us salvation, security, wholeness, identity. And we know that it's going to cost us something, but it doesn't even matter how much it's going to cost us. I have fully put my eggs in one basket and it's called success or I've put my, all my eggs in one basket, and it's just called biological longevity and health. And, and so we live in a culture that we are surrounded by dozens, if not more, different gospels telling us the good news, telling us if you receive this, then you'll receive wholeness and salvation. And so when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to understand that everyone who's watching this, you, your life 
is lived out of a why. It's lived out of a meaning or a purpose and that you could call that a, a gospel, a good news, a message, a narrative you have believed in. I mean, I, I was just looking at this list and I was just thinking about just growing up. It's not even like we all like assign ourselves to one. I can just think of in my own life. I remember like in fourth grade wanting to have a girlfriend. And I remember thinking, I remember like driving on my school bus to go to a field trip to like the water sanitation department in El Cajon. And I'm sitting next to this little blonde girl named Sarah with glasses on. I'm sitting next to her on the bus and I just reach over and start holding her hand. And she starts laughing at me. And I remember just being like, oh my gosh, she's laughing at me. I don't know what to do. And so I just kept holding her hand. And as of that day forward, for the next three days, we were boyfriend and girlfriend. It's pretty serious. I don't know where Sarah's at right now, but I remember as a fourth grader just having this thing of like, oh, I, I need a relationship. Somehow this is going to provide a sense of meaning or belonging. Transfer that to junior high when all of a sudden I realized, like, oh, there's like cool kids or popular kids and I want to be one of them. So I'm going to start sacrificing and giving up my allegiance to these people because it's, going to be, it's, promise, it's promising me a form of salvation, a sense of wholeness that I was longing for in my heart. Um, fast forward and maybe it was... I remember being in, all going up through high school and just realizing, not feeling, man, I really struggled in school. I, I didn't get good grades, and I was around a lot of people who were, and I remember just feeling, man, I don't know if I fit in here. And all of a sudden, I got into music, and that was starting to be successful. And I remember thinking, maybe this is the thing that will bring me salvation. And maybe I didn't use that words, but I chased it like I did. I remember thinking, oh, this is, this is what it is. And even when I got in, even when I went to Bible college, I literally remember having to write my final project in my youth ministry class. And my final project was how to be a successful youth pastor. Literally the title of my paper. And what was so funny is when I remember writing that paper and, feel, and realizing I couldn't find anything in the Bible to support my thesis for that paper. And I, I remember, that was a kind of a wake-up call for me where I realized there is these different messages I've been chasing but we have to go back and just understand what is that thing that Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, says, this is of first importance. This is what I received and giving to, to you. I'm reminding you of it. It's this passionate call. Don't forget. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves in the worlds of so many counterfeit gospels is, what is the gospel? Maybe do a little exercise right now in the quiet of your own house or if you have small kids like me, the not so quiet of your own house or on your drive. How would you describe the gospel? If I were just to ask you, we're at coffee and I said, what is the gospel? What would you say? Paul gives a really succinct definition. He just talks about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's definitely pointing to the crux and the centerpiece of that the gospel is. But here's, here's what I'd like to do. Over the next couple of minutes, um, I want to go off my notes a bit. And I want to just, in my own words, uh, describe the gospel, the story, the, self, the saving story of God that Jesus comes and reveals and is fulfilled and fulfills all of these things. And my hope in, in this is not to, my hope in this is to not trying to have you tell the story like me. 
Well, my hope is twofold. One is that you'd realize that the gospel is incredibly more broad and beautiful than we could ever imagine. And secondly, for you just to feel encouraged that this, if this really is our why as a church and your why as a follower of Jesus, that there should be something within you that should be able to say, this is what the good news of Jesus is. This is the story of Jesus. This is as an evangelist to euangelion, right? The bringer of good news. What musters up? What good news comes? So I just, I just want to just tell you, I just want to tell you the story. You see, the story, before we can even get to Jesus' birth and death and resurrection, the story of the gospel actually begins a long time ago. And you might think, yeah, it begins at creation. I would actually like to argue that the gospel actually begins before creation. You see, according to Genesis 1 and John 17 and other passages, God was already existing before the creation of the world and the cosmos. And he was existing within himself and what, um, and what for, since the early church has been called the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, three persons making up one God. And in this relational divine being, there was beauty and order and perfection. And out of God's own relational goodness of constantly loving and preferring and glorifying the other, he creates everything around us. He creates the earth. And this is the Genesis account. And he creates uh, the separation from land and sea and light and dark and animals and vegetation and this incredibly beautiful poem And at the crescendo of the poem, he creates humanity. He creates us. Again, not primarily as his servants, not primarily because he needs us, but out of his triune relational goodness, births births his humanity. And after everything he creates, there's this poetic refrain, it is good. And after he creates humanity, it comes to this, like I said, this crescendo, this moment in this poem. And after humanity is created, says, it is very good. And this is the beginning of the gospel in my, in, uh, according to the Bible, that there is a good, all-substantial, all-sustaining God that out of his goodness creates a good world and humanity. And after he creates that, he starts developing covenant relationship and union and relationship the same way the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit work together He invites man and woman to mirror that covenant relationship. This is Genesis chapter 2, and it's beautiful. And then Genesis chapter 3 comes around, and this is where the the great conflict enters into the story, where Adam and Eve, in a moment of deception, uh, turn away from God's relationship and desire for them, and they begin to define good and evil for themselves. And the reason we have to begin with the Trinity and we have to begin with the goodness of God is because if we don't, we can read Genesis 3 as thinking of like, the problem is we're lawbreakers. But that's not really, that's, that's a symptom. The real problem is that we've turned from relationship. That God created us out of his goodness, out of who he is, and out of that he said, man and woman, I'm creating you and all humanity that will flow from you to be in relationship with me. And in that moment, as we turned our back on trusting God and to find good and evil for ourselves, 
There was a disruption, a severing in our relationship, and there was a disordering of creation. And from the very beginning, and so the, this is where the, the problem of evil and how there is brokenness in the world, the, the Christian story has a very robust theology of why that exists. For those who are, uh, believe that there is no God, that the problem of evil is actually something that's really hard to reconcile. For those who have faith in the God of the Bible, this is where we find it. And at this point, we know there's something incredibly wrong. Relationships have been severed. But here's what's incredible. In that moment, there is this promise, prophetic promise, that it will not always stay that way. So this good God creating out of his goodness creates humanity and all the created order. And even as that is tainted and disrupted because of our own rebellious choice, God promises it will not remain that way. And so then begins this pattern. And this is, again, this is an incredibly oversimplification. But the whole Old Testament is this pattern where God chooses a person. He restores relationship. We see this in the person of Abraham. He creates a people for himself. And then through Moses, he takes those chosen people and he creates a new order. And then there becomes these pattern of stories out of God's goodness, bringing restoration, eventually humanity, even in their have moments of devotion and brilliance, ultimately turn away. And as humanity turns away from God and it hurts that relationship, God turns back towards them in his mercy and restores them again. And there's, there's this turning away, God chasing, turning away, God being gracious, turning away, God coming again and restoring them again and again and again. This is literally on repeat the entire Old Testament. But you also read that story and it's incredibly hopeless because you think, will we ever be able to restore relationship with God? Will we ever be able to have right relationship with each other? Will we ever be able to have right relationship with the earth? There is something incredibly wrong, and we cannot seem to get it right. The story of Israel that is traced throughout the Old Testament ultimately is the story of the human condition. And so the Old Testament ends with this massive cliffhanger where we're just there and we're like, what are we going to do? If it's up to us, we're not going to last more than a generation or two. There's something within us that just can't seem to maintain relational fidelity with other people, with God. And this is where that triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in and of themselves, live out the plan that was in place from all of eternity. And the Father sends the Son and the power of the Spirit to do what humanity could not and has not ever been able to do for themselves. Please hear me. This is where the story truly begins to bring about hope. We're introduced to a God at this point who no longer is offering plans and prophetic hope, but actually becomes humanity himself through his Son, Jesus shows up and all of a sudden the God who created the entire universe has taken on the humbling reality of a human being, is born literally in a feeding trough in the middle of nowhere with no recognition other than a few lowly pastor shepherds. And in that moment, he begins to start a very humbling and difficult journey 
of living the life of a human being, specifically in the ancient Near East, underneath the oppression of Rome. And he feels everything we feel, and he works through the emotions that we work through and deals with the disappointments we do. And all the while, it was so that we could understand that there is not only a God who is all-powerful, but a God who is all-present. And this Jesus who then came to earth and lives this perfect life looks around to the broken relationships, the classes that had been separated, and he calls the lowly, and he calls the marginalized, and he calls the blind, and he calls the lame. He's like, I'm bringing you back into relationship with me and into society. And it is this radical person of Jesus that 2,000 years later we can't stop talking about. But then it comes to this point where he's not just teaching radical things and living in a radical way. It comes to this climactic point in the story where because of the radical nature of his teachings and his love, they decide to kill him. Imagine the creation killing the creator. Humanity is fed up with who this Jesus is. They cannot handle what he's bringing. And so they do the unthinkable and they accomplish what God had set out for all of eternity and they execute him in an unbearable way, in a humiliating way, with an inch of his life, yet they drag him along up to a cross. And in that moment, in mockery, they post a sign, this is the king of the Jews with a crown of thorns on his head. And in this moment, you see Jesus do two things that I can never stop thinking about. One is more than the lashes on his back and the thorns dug into his skull and the nails in his wrists. The pain he began to feel was the pain of Eden, the pain of the father and his relationship, feeling the weight of all of the disruption and the pain that had existed from all all of history and all history moving forward from that point. And in that moment of feeling the pain of broken relationship, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is simultaneously a moment happening where two thieves hanging on his right and his left, two insurrectionists, one mocks and one looks at him and he says, remember me. Remember me when you enter into your Father's kingdom. And Jesus looks at this thief who's, who's rightfully hanging on a cross. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. He looks down at the people literally crucifying him and his prayer is not, God, this is worse than I thought. Father, do something about this. His prayer is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There is no gospel that tells a story of the promise of salvation and wholeness that does not cost you something, it costs him something. And any sort of cost we acquire is in response. It is a freely given surrender. It is not means to an end that we have to earn this earn this gift of restored relationship but if you know this story you know it's not it does not end in a loving sacrifice that loving sacrifice ends in a victorious resurrection but three days later jesus rose from the dead 
And as he does, ushers in a new kingdom reality that even death itself cannot stop this gospel, cannot prevent the plan and the will of God. <clears throat> and in his resurrection, his body, he calls people to this new resurrection life. By the giving of his spirit, a church, a community is formed and, and lives out of who he is. And we are now a byproduct of that. We are the great, 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 great grandchildren of these early church fathers and mothers of these people that says, we've never seen anything like this. And neither have we. There is no story like this gospel. You see, the gospel asks these four questions, which, by the way, you have to ask about any good news you're hearing. Number one, what magnitude is the life-altering good news? How big is this life-altering good news? And for Jesus, it's enormous. It couldn't be bigger. Secondly, who is invited into this good news? where the gospel of success only invites the top of the top and the gospel of relationships only invites who culture has said is beautiful or worthy, where the gospel of health only, only looks to those who have the ability to afford buying healthy foods and being able to exercise. This gospel is for everyone. This good news is not inhibited from anyone. Thirdly, what is the scope of the promise of salvation and wholeness? Where every other gospel that answers, it's temporal. You can be healthy for a little while. You can be successful for a little while. You might have a relationship for a little while. And even in those moments, there might be a sense of strain or a long of, man, it wasn't what I expected. But can I just tell you, that the scope of the promise of salvation and wholeness is eternal. That it, it actually goes, it's in this life and beyond this life. Lastly, what level of surrender and allegiance is required? Keep, keep in mind, every single gospel requires something of you. And the gospel of Jesus is no different, but here's what's unique. The gospel of Jesus is the only good news that talks about what was given up for you, not what you need to give up for it. The gospel of Jesus tells a story of the ultimate price was already paid. And then in that, there's an invitation for the life that we have to be given up to him because he has earned that level of trust. And I love this. There, there are verses, and there's a lot of verses people like to highlight. It says, listen, the road that leads to life is narrow and hard. And it is true. Following Jesus will cost you greatly, but so will every other gospel. But the unique thing about the gospel of Jesus is this, is a gospel that you don't have to perform and achieve alone. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So think about this, even if the road is narrow and the way is hard, you don't walk it alone. You are yoked with Jesus moving forward. Um, I remember when uh, Frozen, uh, the, the Disney movie came out, and my kids, my, my daughters at that time were the perfect age to just be sucked into it. We watched it multiple times in the theaters. Bought it when it came out on DVD when that was still a thing. And 
I loved the movie and I remember thinking, like, I want my daughters to watch this as much as they want because it's actually one of the most clear pictures of a gospel story I'd ever seen. It mirrored that of Jesus in that the, the saving love in that movie was not romantic, but rather it was the giving up of life for her sister. And even the tagline in the movie, only love can thaw a frozen heart. There's just so many things that the pastor is like, this is so good. Yes, this is, this is what brings about salvation and redemption in the story is a self-sacrificing love. And as I'm watching this, I'm, I start realizing that it becomes incredibly successful. And I, I checked, it became the highest grossing animated film of all time. And again, this was a few years back. And it made me really curious. I was like, huh, if this story is very much a gospel story. I wonder what the other highest grossing films were of all time. And I began to look and I remember I'm like on the list there's oh there's there's Avengers Endgame where there is a hero, there is a problem that can only be solved by the laying down the life of a hero. Oh it's the Harry Potter series which ultimately ends with the sacrifice of a of a, of a willing boy who ends up bringing salvation. Oh, it was Titanic. It was Avatar, the same person who made both, which tells the same story, someone who gives up their life for the salvation of another. And I started realizing that within our culture, the stories we love best based on our wallets are stories that have shadows of the gospel of Jesus to follow that same arc that we can't save ourselves. Any sort of gospel that says you can save yourself or this can save you without some sort of all-powerful being laying up down their life for our well-being isn't, doesn't match up. And so I started really, man, this is, this is part of the truest sense of who we are as human beings. We are longing for this story. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 in my opinion, is a beautiful paraphrase of what the gospel is. It says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live. And when you followed the ways of this world and the rulers of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in you and those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Listen to verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 we need to be reminded of. The gospel that we need to receive, the gospel we need to stand on, the gospel that brings salvation, the gospel that is of first importance. This is why everything we do flows out of this story. Last story I want to share with you. 
Uh, earlier this week, um, my son Augustine uh, decided to do a little science experiment in our bedroom and plugged our sink in our bathroom vanity and turned the water on for who knows how long. And all of a sudden, he walks out and tells Vienna, his big sister, he says, don't look at the flood. And Vienna says, what? She immediately goes into our bedroom, and there is water everywhere. It has flooded our, our bedroom. And I'm, I'm not at home at the time, and Jen uh, texts me, and she's like, just so you know, Augie flooded our room. I'm like, what do you mean? And I'm thinking like some water spilled out. And when I get home, I walk into our room, which they had already done a lot of the work of getting towels and drying it up. And I realize, I'm like, oh, it is worse than I thought. And, and, I, and I bring Augustine into the room. And I said, son, do you, do you know what happened here? And he's like, yeah. He's like, I plugged the sink. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm like, you can't, you can't do that again. He's like, okay. I'm like, you're going to help me clean it up. And he's like, okay. So I give him a towel and he starts sopping things up. And, and within about two minutes, um, he's like, I'm done. And realizing his five-year-old capacity and gave him to help a little bit more. But within a few minutes, he has left the room and he has helped clean up the flood. For the next three to five, four or five hours, I'm on my hands and knees, cleaning up water, putting books outside, shoes outside, washing bedding, and I'm, I'm detailing the room, getting fans from our neighbor, putting fans everywhere. And the entire half of my day is spent cleaning up the mess that I didn't make. And it was in that moment that I was just reminded, I'm like, this is what God has done for us. He invites us in. This message is inviting us in. Do you see, do you see the damage? If we don't see the damage, we'll never see the grace, the gift. And God invites us to, to receive this, this gift of saying, hey, even though the damage, do you see I'm going to help you? But the reality is, my son will never know the amount of time and work it took to clean up the mess that was created. And I'll never understand the enormity of the sacrifice Jesus made so I could be back in relationship with him. The clean up the mess that has been created in this world and some of which I have contributed to has been cleaned up because of the gospel. And here's, and here's what I want to leave you with today. If you've never received that gift and you've been believing and living into other gospels, my prayer is that today that the gospel of Jesus would just be illuminated to your heart and you'd receive that gift, the salvation, the wholeness you want more than anything has already been purchased and given to you. And secondly, like Paul says, if you've received that gift, I pray you'd be reminded of that gift. Stop striving. Stop trying to earn back what has already been freely given and let the, the good work prepared in advance for you to do be out of the overflow that you recognize you are his masterpiece, his handiwork, and you understand the grace that has been given to you. So let me pray for you. Heavenly Father,
I've been reading about and preaching the gospel for years. And God, it never gets old. Lord, sometimes I get old and I get, I normalize things and it loses its wonder, but God, there is no greater story that's ever been told than that of you drawing near to us in your mercy and making a way when there's no way, restoring right relationship with us and the possibility of relationship with each other and this world. God, we ask that you would just right now, Holy Spirit, if there's someone who's never received that gospel, would they receive you now, Jesus? And Lord, if there's someone who's received that gospel but needs to be reminded of it, God, I pray that it would result in absolute adoring worship because you are deserving of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.